Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm indecorous story expert, Lottie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar and anatomy enthusiast, Noella Croy. And we're here today to talk about Some Assembly Required, the second episode of season two. Some Assembly Required first aired on September 22nd, 1997, and was written by Ty King and directed by Bruce Seth Green. Ty King will write just one more episode of Buffy, this season's 17th episode, passion which is amazing a warning before we begin every episode of still pretty talks about each episode within the greater context of all of buffy and as such is fully spoiled so hey i got a thing you're maybe feeling a thing and there could be a thing all right let's go on patrol In some assembly required, Buffy's in the graveyard waiting on a new vampire to rise and fighting with a vampire who rose a long time ago. She dispatches the fresh vampire, then falls into an open grave and discovers that it didn't belong to a vampire. Whoever was buried here didn't rise from this grave. She was dragged from it. At school, Giles is trying to figure out how to ask out Jenny Calendar while Willow is signing up for the school science fair, which is always won by Chris, Sunnydale's resident scientific genius. Meanwhile, Chris's creepy friend Eric takes pictures of all the girls, including Buffy, Willow, and Cordelia. The Scoobies spend the evening checking the graves of other dead girls, then return to the library and compare notes with Angel and Cordelia. Somebody's been digging up the bodies of dead girls. I know. We found some of them. You mean like two of the three? I mean like some of them. Like parts. The Scoobies do a locker search and discover evidence pointing to Chris and Eric. In Chris's basement, we discover what he and Eric are up to, assembling a girl from the parts they dug up in order to give Chris's brother Daryl, who Chris reanimated after his death, a similarly reanimated companion. Meanwhile, Giles tries to ask Jenny out and fails, but she helps him out, and they plan to go to the football game together. Giles returns to the library with news. I spoke to a press person this morning about the remains. The police have finished sorting through them, and apparently they found three heads in the dumpster. They only had three girls. Precisely. So they don't have the whole... Uh, package. In Frankenstein's basement, Chris doesn't want to kill a girl to get a usable head, but Daryl insists, and when Eric gives him a choice of girls from the high school, Daryl selects Cordelia. Buffy checks out Chris's basement, but doesn't find anything before running out. At the school, Eric and Chris try to kidnap Cordelia, but Buffy gets there just in time to rescue her. Cordelia rushes out to cheer at the game, and Buffy finds and confronts Chris, who confesses all. They rush to the basement to find Daryl. He's not here. Where else could he be? But he would never go out. He's going to pick up where you left off. Willow and Xander find nothing at Eric's house, then show up at the game and crash Giles' date with Jenny. Cordelia goes under the bleachers to get a drink of water, and Daryl kidnaps her dragging her to an abandoned warehouse where Eric prepares to take off her head. Buffy interrupts and fights Daryl. Gasoline spills and catches fire, and Xander, Willow, Giles, and Jenny rescue Cordelia and Eric from the blaze. Daryl jumps on top of the assembled girl body and dies, again, as the building burns down. Buffy comforts Chris outside as the fire department deals with the fallout, and Angel shows up looking for Buffy. I saw the fire. I figured you'd be here. Is everyone okay? Yeah. 
we're okay. Later, Buffy and Angel walk home together through Sunnydale's most romantic graveyard and clear up their misunderstandings. I don't love Xander. Yeah, but he's in your life. He gets to be there when I can't. Take your classes, eat your meals, hear jokes and complaints. He gets to see you in the sunlight. Okay, so Noel. <laughs> Some assembly required. Kind of a difficult episode in a lot of ways. Um, from a narrative perspective, I think it's actually pretty well written. Um, yeah. But it's troublesome in a lot of different ways. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. What did you think? Oh, my God. I, <laughs> I yeah, I really like this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say. I don't like this episode, <laughs> but there's a lot to look at and unpack in this episode. And yeah. I, I really... I really enjoy a, a Frankenstein's monster, I gotta sure, say. Sure, sure. It's always fun to kind of have that sort of story to play with. That that works for me, but yeah. oh my gosh, when I was looking at this and trying to figure out kind of like, why do a Frankenstein's monster story other than that's such a great classic mm-hmm. monster to look at, um, I started thinking about the title and some assembly required. And, you know, obviously we're talking about this science Mm-hmm. project um which were they really going to submit that for the science fair i don't oh no I... he wasn't going to submit daryl for the science fair but i think he was going to do something like based on the science he did to reanimate daryl as part of that sure but yeah i don't, I don't think he was going to bring his dead brother to the science fair. <laughs> <laughs> although he would have gotten an a <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's pretty impressive right um but over and over throughout the episode, we have characters assembling. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this undercurrent of fractured masculinity, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Right. Um, and I feel like we we get to see that in all of our male characters throughout this episode in one form or another. All right. Um, Let's dig into that. That's really interesting. Yeah. So we start off... I mean, we have... We have our villains, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Chris and Eric, um, and and Daryl, and that whole storyline. But there's also, you know, we have our regularly, um, our regularly occurring male characters: Angel, mm-hmm. Xander, Giles. We've got Angel's jealousy of Xander and his mm-hmm. feelings of sort of inadequacy at not being in Buffy's life the way Xander is. Mm-hmm. Um, Giles is, you know, not really successful attempts to ask Jenny out and he needs Buffy's coaching um, and the kids support which seems sort of weird to me I mean I know the 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 Scoobies have this unique relationship with Giles but I can't imagine ever coaching an adult in my life on the nuances of dating yeah it it is a little weird I mean I I again we have this kind of strange equalization that goes on because Giles, his primary relationship with these kids is not teacher student and it's not even adult child. They're colleagues. Right. They're a team. Like yeah. he is the manager. He oversees things, but, but they all play a role, you know, and they all are have, kind of have equal status. Now in his personal life, that is adult and children, you know, 
but their relationship really is more of colleagues than it is um than it is of like you know a student teacher adult child um parent child we do have some of those i mean obviously it's a very you know father-daughter relationship with buffy but it's still like on an equal level if anything buffy's the one who's probably got the highest level of power in the group you know so um yeah i don't know i find it really interesting but i do like that we have a personal story for giles which is something that we haven't had up until now we haven't put him in a in a personal situation and in order to tell these stories really effectively we need that personal space and that of course is the space in which he is fractured yeah yeah he's not he's not capable he's so capable in other areas and this is an area where he's not i love it yeah and then you know daryl obviously i mean he's he's literal fractured masculinity because he's Mm -hmm. been reconstructed um but there's also the sense that he's less than if he's Mm -hmm. alone Mm -hmm. um and with daryl the the characters talk about his loneliness and try to solve it with this female companion. Mm-hmm. But what he really seems to miss is playing football and right. his team. Mm-hmm. When we see him, when he when he comes to the game and we see him under the bleachers and he's he's watching what's going on, the the eyeline match that we get for him is on he's not he's not leering at the cheerleaders. He's watching these guys play the game and then yeah and then celebrate with each other they hug and they high five and it's this male bonding and camaraderie that daryl seems to be longing for much more so than um any sort of you know female attention or companion or dating life right it's that longing for community and i think we have a lot of themes you know of we have we have themes of isolation and community throughout this whole thing i mean that's Mm -hmm. what frankenstein is is about you know Mm -hmm. um and so it is actually it's a really nice moment i mean for me in watching daryl because daryl the only people that he has any like contact with are his brother and his brother's creepy ass friend eric right and they're scientists he's an athlete right so here he is looking at everything that had any meaning to him which was this experience of playing football of being on a team i mean playing football is not something that you can do in isolation you are automatically part of a community if you're part of a team and there he had a team and he doesn't have that anymore and that is masculine community masculine community is something that doesn't get a whole lot of play you know, in mod- in pop culture, although I think we're getting more of it now. Uh, and mostly when we see masculine community, it is in terms of of some kind of a team. It is in terms of mm-hmm. a work team or an athletic team, something like that, because that's the one place where men are allowed, you know, kind of to be in community generally, like, you know, throughout yeah. our, our culture. Um, so it's really interesting that here we have his goals so tied to reanimating a girl so that there would be a girl who wouldn't ever leave him, which is 
really, really terrible. Um, and it's all about having a girl and having that one romantic companion. And we're telling all these romantic stories and these romantic pairings throughout in all of our stories in this episode. But the thing that he misses, which is something we don't get in the actual, like in anything that he says, but we get it in that one wistful moment when he's watching that team of athletes work together. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really powerful, really interesting, and kind of antithetical to this whole idea that he needs one woman, you know? Yeah. Well, and if you wanted to go deep into the subtext of that, you could talk about taking all of that longing for masculine community and connection and specifically the physical connection that the players yeah. have because mm -hmm. they're in the moment that he's watching them they are I think they actually are embracing after yeah. someone has you know made this so it's it's masculine community but also um physical closeness yes mm -hmm. and I think that I mean if you wanted to you could do a um a reading of Daryl where he's what he's longing for is that male companionship, mm -hmm. but it gets but because the only outlet for men in heterosexist society is romance, you know, sex, romance with a woman, mm -hmm. all of that desire for the the camaraderie of being on the team and being in close physical contact with other men gets put into this idea of a sexual relationship with a woman right mm -hmm. if you wanted to you know if you yeah. wanted to to um develop an entire psychology for daryl who really is not a very nuanced character right <laughs> but you know, it's an interesting, like, it's an interesting question. What is, it seems to me that, that, you know, Chris is very, Chris is very invested in making good on his promise to his brother. Yes. Mm -hmm. Chris's story gets, seems to get sort of tangled up in what I read as Eric's desire to create this, this yeah. female monster well, they literally fractured this character right because all you need is the one right all you yeah. need for, to do what eric and chris do you only need one guy except that we've got the the good conflicted side and then the evil you know just no no worries about anything that he's doing side oh yeah and in order for us to have any compassion for chris who lost his brother whose mother has gone like you know deep into into grief so far that she mm -hmm. cannot come out and connect with him um whose father is apparently just gone you know yeah. um that that we want to have compassion for him but what he's doing is so monstrous that we have to push that um you know that motivation onto Eric that Eric is the one who is motivating the monstrous part of this and Chris is just sort of riding along so i mean Chris i see as two sides he is both Chris and Eric but we fracture him down the middle and put all of the goodness on one side all of the badness on the other so that we can separate that out and actually still have compassion for Chris now do you think that that is intentional storytelling so that we can have this so that so that Chris can be okay so that he's not a monster I think he's I think so I think so that we can have some compassion because if you look at I mean and even so like Chris 
uh, once again, like at the end of this episode, we have the complete evasion of consequence. Like Daryl dies. He was already dead in the first place. So he mm-hmm. kind of went back to where he should have been by nature. Like, you know, they, they right. subverted nature. Um, they violated the laws of nature. And so the only thing to do with that is to reset back to where it was. So when Daryl dies, you know, that's kind of where, you know, where he's supposed to be. Right. But we have Chris and Eric at the end who have really no consequence. I mean, Eric got knocked out, but Giles gets knocked out twice an episode. So that's not a right. Thing, you know, <laughs> um, and so we don't really get a consequence for what they've done, you know, in this episode at all. Um, and yeah, so I don't know, like, I think that in order for us to be okay with, you know, with how this ends, you know, we have Buffy comforting Chris at the end, instead of being like, hey, this is a monstrous thing that you did. Yeah, you know? like what the what the actual fuck, Chris? Right. So he gets like a cup of hot cocoa and some marshmallows at the end of this when there really should be consequence and especially there should be consequence for Eric. But we yeah. don't get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Eric is just horrible. I mean, he's just awful from yeah. the get go. And of course, he's supposed to be. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. He's supposed mm-hmm. to be just monstrous. And of course, because we have Eric being our embodiment of predatory masculinity, Xander mm-hmm. gets to be pretty decent in this episode. Right. You um, know, and this is the thing. Whenever we directly look at toxic masculinity, Xander's suddenly okay. But it's like when we don't have a prevalent theme of toxic masculinity in an episode, Xander somehow has to be our delivery mechanism for it. And I'm not sure why that is. Why, like, we can't have an episode without toxic masculinity. If we look directly at it, Xander can suddenly be okay. Right. There's something about sometimes I have this sense that the writers just can't help themselves that they just we just had to make that sexist joke we just couldn't it was right there it was right there but really guys really guys but I love I mean speaking of of sort of fractured um fractured or incomplete masculinity Mm -hmm. we have Xander's Xander and Angel I love (laughs) so much and Xander's The way that Xander dials up the snark and dials up the, like, his little attitude mm-hmm. when they're all in the library and, and Xander's yeah. there with Buffy and Cordelia and mm-hmm. Angel come in. And Xander's obvious disdain for Angel yes. mm-hmm. is just, is so, so emblematic of right poor Xander. I mean, and he's so he's... patently jealous. You know, which is interesting because, you know, Angel cops to being jealous of Xander, but he's not jealous of Xander because he possesses Buffy and Buffy might like Xander. That's not it. He's jealous of Xander because Xander gets to see her in the sunlight because Xander gets to share a part of her life. So we have this um, this kind of immature jealousy from Xander which is all about possession of Buffy and that he's, he's the boy in Buffy's life. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and then we get this, I, I don't know if there's a, a, a way of looking at jealousy as being mature, you know, but this is, you know, this is like almost a mature envy from Angel, you know, that it isn't yeah. about, it isn't about possession of Buffy and it isn't about like, he is going to care about Buffy regardless of whether she likes him back. Like, it is about he Xander gets to experience 
a part of Buffy that Angel just can't. Yeah. And that's what he's jealous of. And I think that that is so endearing. And, you know, you you put them up next to each other. And, you know, granted, I mean, Xander's like a 16-year-old boy. Right. You know? So, I mean, the fact that he's not perfectly mature and wonderful, that's fine. It's like, this yeah. is fine, Xander. It is okay for Xander not to be perfect. Right. What is not okay is for us to look at it and say, oh, that's fine. Boys will be boys. And I don't think that we do that here. I think what we do is we have a reflection of this immature jealousy that is about possession versus this kind of more mature you know I I wouldn't even call it jealousy or envy it's like a wistfulness about about what Angel doesn't get to to have with Buffy what he doesn't get to experience with her and I thought it was really nice I love that Mm -hmm. I I love Angel in this episode I love Angel Um, too I love I you know and I do think that it's jealousy I think that that Mm -hmm. with Angel I think that what it is is it's a it's the understanding that jealousy is not about the other people in a relationship when you're mm-hmm. jealous of a relationship you're jealous of i mean ideally what you're responding to is what these people have together yes. mm-hmm. and in buffy and xander's case what they have together is their their daily life that's what mm-hmm. angel is talking about yeah. and but his awareness is um Connected to the fact that that jealousy is about him. It's about his longing to -hmm. have this thing that he can't have. And And he's not mad or mean about it. Right? Like, I mean, Xander is so snarky to Angel. Oh, Angel, you know? Yeah. But but Angel isn't like that to Xander. Like, Angel isn't mean to Xander. And he's not, like, possessive with Buffy. You know, like, he's, he's not playing games with it he just says yeah you know this is a feeling that I have yeah you know and I love that yeah and we we have the wonderful bookends of Angel Mm -hmm. and Buffy in the in the graveyard at the beginning and then again at the end and when they're when they're fighting and he says you always bring up the vampire thing which I just I just love it's so every time we fight you bring up the vampire thing I I know it's so delightful I really, I really, really like Angel. Although, I'm, I have concerns. Yes. About Angel mm-hmm. when he's following Cordelia, in mm-hmm. the parking lot. Oh yeah. He's, like, really? Like he really no, it's, thought it's completely stupid, and it is that whole scene is predicated on the idea that nobody has the ability to say, "Oh hey, how you doing?" Um, right. And, and nobody has peripheral vision at all. Like oh, no. all Cordelia can see are his shoes, you know? And so she runs and jumps into the, but like, he's right there. Yeah. You know, like he's right there. That situation is completely manufactured, you know, completely yeah. contrived and it doesn't work at all, but it gets Cordelia into the garbage can where she finds body parts. And there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I mean, we'll talk about wardrobe a little bit because there's some great wardrobe in this episode, mm-hmm. but what the actual fuck is Angel's jacket? That that tan beige. What? What? <laughs> what is he wearing? That bothers you more than the velour. Yes. Okay, the velour smoking jacket is what throws me off. This I was fine, but no. I don't know. Tan jackets apparently are a thing that will send people into a tizzy. So I don't know. I, I but it, it first. I don't know. I. It just looks so wrong. <laughs> it looks so wrong. I don't. <laughs> like, I guess it was left over from the seventies. You know. I, I don't mean, you build know. up a wardrobe over two hundred and forty-one years, and eventually you're like, hey, I haven't worn this in a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
I I just like what really? I don't know. Yeah. But but I guess when when they show up in the library and Cordelia, I love Cordelia is like the clinging vine on yes. Angel. Oh, it's so, so sweet. Funny. So yeah. funny. I guess they look a little bit better together with the mm-hmm. she's wearing the yellow Sunnydale cheerleader. Yeah, cheerleader. Sweat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but that jacket and the way he grins at her when yeah. he sort of appears in the front. Like, it's a weird it's weird. It's a weird scene. I don't know. Like the the Angel and Cordelia relationship, obviously, you know, at this point, we have nothing else to inform it now right. because I'm also doing Still Dead with Kelly Jones about Angel. And, and that, of course, is after season three when Cordelia moves over there. And they have a completely different relationship. For me, it's like, oh, this was the first time that Cordelia and Angel were, you know, like, whatever. Um, it's really fun for me to see it. But in the actual moment, it's a weird thing. You yeah. know, like the whole relationship between them is just weird. Yeah, they can't. It it seems to me like the show can't decide what Cordelia's relationship with Angel is. Mm-hmm. She She is, you know, obviously... <laughs> I well, love she's her. after Angel. I mean, the, yeah. the first thing she says when she sees him in the beginning is, hello, salty goodness. Like, she obviously, <laughs> yes. you know, likes Angel and thinks that he's attractive and all of that. And so she's... But the thing is, is that between Angel and Cordelia, there is, like, the the age difference, the power differential is so massive. And he mm-hmm. doesn't even look at her. Like, he's, he's there to, like, take care of her and make sure she gets home safe or whatever, you yeah. know? But, like, he is not at all you know, into this thing or into Cordelia, or I don't think he even sees Cordelia, you know, I think Cordelia is like to him, just another puppy in the room that he has to make sure is safe, you know? Right. Um, But it is kind of funny to see that because there's such a, a difference with Angel and Cordelia that anything, if he looked at her in any way, it would be so inappropriate. And yet Angel and Buffy is fine. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. We've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why that's okay. Um, but, you know, I think that this is one of the things that was really interesting to me in this episode is this, like, we have this literal objectification of women down to body parts. She is a oh, foot. Yeah. She is an ankle. She is a head. Right. Yeah. Um, And we have so much misogyny, all of it packed into Eric with that douchey proto goatee i don't know what the hell that was about what what is <laughs> i don't i don't even know i don't even know but he is beyond disgusting i mean even when like in the opening when we don't even know how horrible he is and he's just taking the pictures of the girls in this obnoxious like flashing the the camera in their faces yeah and being you know aggressive and every possible way that a man can be aggressive you know um he is just like honestly 20 pounds of misogyny packed in a five pound bag i mean it is insane you know um and then we have that one moment from him where he says well hell it's just one lousy girl you know like he is so into this project i don't think just because of the science like i could be i could forgive or at least understand somebody who's so into the science like we did this the first time but maybe this time we can do this and we could do that right but he is it is active misogyny he just hates women and yeah. it's so gross and greasy 
you yeah, know, he, throughout the episode and feels uh, just awful. You know, it would be like, it would be one thing if, if Chris was really about, you know, reanimating his brother, right? And it was Eric who was the scientist and Eric mm-hmm. who was the Frankenstein, right? Yeah. You know, who just like did this thing and was so excited about next time we can do this and we can make it better. That I think would have been a little more interesting than just running down this, this, you know, cement block of misogyny and dropping it in the middle of this episode. It felt really, really like heavy and weighted and gross to me. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely one of those Mm -hmm. storylines that for me, the more I dug into it and the more I thought about, or what are they, what are they saying with this? Right. Just the grosser it gets. I mean, the idea, first of all, the idea that these three dead girls are literally a collection of parts that were going to cut them up and pick and choose the best pieces, presumably. Well, my presumption on that was they'd all been in a car accident together. So Uh... one had a broken ankle, one had a broken arm. You take the parts that are functional between the three of them, right? But apparently Daryl fell on his face when he was rock climbing and still is, you know, they still managed to get Daryl back. In one piece. In one piece. Sure. Because it was Daryl. Because Daryl is an actual person and the girls are just collections of parts. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just... I. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like Daryl fell hard enough to die yeah. and they reanimated him, although it, it appears that he doesn't have the ability to heal anymore because it's been at least some months and his face is still just stitched together. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, a, a Daryl is a weird question. Um, and. You know, the the girls are a weird question and the way in which we approach the girls and also that, you know, for Daryl, who died and was brought back, you know, we're going to just kill these girls because girls have, you know, unquestioned less value. Oh, yeah. You know, than than Daryl does, than the the boy does. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something that while even while we're looking at how gross the misogyny is. Um, that is something that is just, it goes unquestioned throughout, you know, Chris, you know, subscribes to that. Daryl subscribes to that. Eric subscribes to that. You know, women are of less value than men. Um, and it's, and that honestly, like is not questioned. Eric's misogyny is not questioned We're it's supposed to be gross. I mean, it definitely is, is played. He's the bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's that one moment where, um, where Xander says, you know, oh, I thought their heads were pretty enough or whatever. And he's like, but I'm not as gross as that guy. And I'm like, not as gross, but you know, you're sliding into that territory. Um, because you know, the value of a, of a woman is in how she looks. You know, it's how pretty she is. Um, Jenny Callender is relatively dullsome, especially for a man in your age bracket, right? Um, you know, that that's the thing about Jenny Callender that makes her, you know, a, an interesting prospect for Giles. Not that right. she's smart, that she knows things like about, you know, all of the stuff like the Hellmouth and all of it. Like she has an interest in that and she's studied and she's, you know, all of those things that she is. She's a bunch of other things aside from pretty. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty... That is the only quality that's called out 
you know, by, yeah. by Xander. I mean, Giles right. is, you know, doesn't say anything one way or the other, but it's presumed that Giles sees much more in her other than that she is, you know, relatively dolesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I thought that that was, you know, it's, it's interesting that even while calling it out, we're still living in a space where some of these presumptions are just taken as read, you know, that women, women, of course, women just have less value than men. You know, we're not yeah. going to question that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you, you know, and Eric's gross justification, if you take a life to make a life, it comes out like right. he's, he's just so unruffled by the idea of killing someone that it right. really, like to Eric, you know, he says it's just one lousy girl and he so mm-hmm. delights in the selection, you know, in Daryl's selection process, yeah. choosing Cordelia from the photographs and the way he, there's something so so predatory and gross the way he throws the pictures down in front of Uh, daryl yeah without looking at the pictures he's looking at daryl to to gauge his reaction Mm -hmm. it's it is so gross and so you know he's he is literally throwing these women at daryl's feet Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. no regard for anything other than this project you know he says how's right. my baby mm-hmm. about the the body which first of all we're making this for daryl not for eric right. mm-hmm. but i get the idea that that eric is maybe eric is way invested in this mm-hmm. idea i mean you would have yeah. to be but mm-hmm. he's way invested in this way that's just oh it's so icky and i really really wish that eric was the one who died in the fire <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, there should have been some freaking consequence for Eric. And the thing is that, like, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you send to the police somebody who I mean, I guess he tried to kidnap Cordelia. He could go to the police for that. You know, he they could take him in for that. But there's no like laws on the books about reanimating dead tissue or grave robbing. I guess he could go for that. Right. But there should be like the police should be there throwing Eric into the back of a damn cop car. And, we, you know, and that's the thing. Like, we don't have real consequence for this we don't have real pushback on this presumed idea that women have less value than men and that's where this episode you know while it does openly shine a light on toxic masculinity and misogyny um it doesn't really say that this is worthy of punishment you know i mean even chris chris gets a cup of cocoa i mean not literally but like it's a cup of cocoa at the end right oh poor chris you know how sad for you your brother died um but i don't know but that that kind of moves us into uh one of the things that i saw here because i'm I'm seeing this frankenstein you know um reflection and that has to do with isolation and community and the power of community and all of that and being rejected by community but here we've got themes of grief as well Mm -hmm. we've got a lot of grief we've got you know chris is in grief over daryl yeah so he loses his perspective and he reanimates daryl and brings him back to life right Mm -hmm. his mother is so lost to grief that she doesn't even see chris anymore all she does is watch these videos of daryl when buffy comes in she barely speaks to her Mm -hmm. unless they're talking about daryl you know yeah um so we have like you know these grief we have cordelia playing up her grief to try to get attention you know early in the episode um and 
you know, this, the grief is about the loss of relationship, right? And, and so Daryl is also in grief for the loss of his community, for the loss of his athletic team, for the loss of the games, for the loss of that, you know, masculine community. So there's so much grief in this episode. And it seems like, you know, if you're in grief, like Chris is in grief, and he does this monstrous thing, and he gives a space for Eric to do monstrous things. Um, and so somehow because of his grief, that's okay. You know, um, mm-hmm. somehow because of the mother's grief, it's okay that she's ignoring her other child, you know, yeah. and not going back into the world. She never leaves the house, right? Mm-hmm. She just sits there smoking cigarettes and watching the videotapes, you know? Um, so I don't know, like, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting because in Frankenstein, in the original material, right, the monster is just made, you know, the monster is just made and he's so monstrous. And then, of course, the the person who made him abandons him, mm-hmm. you know, and he's yeah. sort of left in this space of ultimate isolation, tries to connect with a family, can't. But we don't really deal with the issues of grief until the monster starts killing people that are important to, you know, the doctor, Frankenstein, right? right? Um, so it's interesting in here how we have wound this idea of grief almost as a justification for monstrous behavior and for creating a monster and uh and there's definitely i mean frankenstein is very much connected to the idea of um men creating life and what happens when men you know do this thing that that women are supposed to do i'm using the biggest air quotes right air quoted right, right um and the consequences for that kind of um, I want to say ego, the sort mm-hmm. of ego driven creation as opposed to what nature intended. I mean, what nature intended. Well, right. And the thing is that you're violating the laws of nature when you take something dead and bring it mm-hmm. back to life. Mm-hmm. You know, not just not just that it can't like it can't be done. It shouldn't be done. You know, Um, so I think that that's really interesting. And that is interesting. I hadn't seen that reflection on, right, the one thing that women can do, the Mm -hmm. one thing that women can do that men can't do, right? The one thing. And that's what they've got to take. Right. You know, well, and we call that out a little bit in the Mm -hmm. in the graveyard when there when Giles and Xander are digging up the the grave right and you know it's clearly so like we've clearly established at this point that we're doing frankenstein and uh buffy says men dig up the corpses women have the babies right (laughs) which yeah i just i enjoy so much um Mm -hmm. because it's almost it feels to me like she's just calling out men not giles Mm -hmm. and xander particularly but men in general on their sexism like well you wanted it Mm -hmm. this way so right exactly so now you got to pay the price now you got to pay the price you know all that male privilege you dig up the graves exactly you take your male privilege and we will Mm -hmm. sit here and eat donuts and right and chat and talk about boys and talk about boys but of course then buffy's the only one with you know who's willing to open the the coffin once oh, right they, exactly you know, and mm-hmm. she just pushes him out of the way and all right yeah jumps down and does her does her duty um mm-hmm. but we do have i mean we do have a little bit of play on gender roles with that mm-hmm. that line and with cordelia clinging to angel and then with 
with uh, Giles and Jenny, which is really the the bright spot in this episode yeah. for me. Can we yeah. talk about Giles and Jenny and their adorable? Oh my god, it's so sweet. They're well, I so love cute. this whole thing. I love that he is so uncomfortable in this space. Like he has such a difficult time trying to figure out how to ask her out. And then, you know, we have him practicing in the beginning, you know, and then Xander and Buffy are making fun of him and teasing him. And then he goes to actually ask her out and does no better than he did with the chair. You know, he yeah. can't get the words out. And what I really like, like Jenny is always a problem for me in a lot of ways, but I really loved how how like seamlessly she handled that situation for him that she was like oh well if you've got something to tell me why don't you tell me tonight at the game we'll go out to dinner for you like mexican you know yeah and she just completely took charge of that situation and i mean this is the thing like you look at these classic gender roles the boy asks the girl out and the girl says yes or no or whatever mm-hmm. and that's how that goes you know and so instead of playing to that, she sees that he's interested. She sees that he's trying to ask her out and she just makes it easy for him. You know, she just yeah. says, yeah, let's do it. Like, and it's not even like about gender roles. It's just about, I have a thing. You got a thing. Let's have a thing. <laughs> like, she's just, she's okay with it. And she's so in charge. And I really kind of like that, you know, and I like the way she was like, oh yeah, you know, we'll go on a second date. And, you know, did you, ca-? and he goes, oh, second date, you know, yeah. um, she's running this whole thing. And yeah. Giles is just there. And, you know, and I think it's it's really nice that she, I, you know, because I didn't see it as her, you know, like overpowering the situation or like whatever. I just saw it as her like being kind and yeah. not making him go through this whole thing, not teasing him, not playing games with him. She's like, yeah, let's just do it. You know, yeah. it's it was really nice. So I like um, I like Jenny Calendar. Oh, and I realized I stole a joke from this that I didn't even realize I'd stolen. Oh, <laughs> she goes, Oh, please call me Jenny. Miss Calendar's my father. Uh huh. And I used that in a book once, you know, sometimes these things happen and you don't realize <laughs> where you get them from, you know, and I remember yeah. using that in a book once and I was like, Oh, you know, and I didn't realize I'd gotten it from so uh, so sorry for the, you know, minor plagiarism, uh, Ty King, it was it was a great line. And I used it. I'm sorry. It is a great um, line. Yeah. We get some really, really good Jenny in this episode. Yes. I don't want to like her. She's problematic. But I really, yeah. really like her in this episode. I like her in this episode. I yeah. like her in this episode. I like how I don't I don't read her so much as being kind to Giles, although I think she is. I just yes. I read it as she's just completely at ease. This is her. Yes. She is fine. She's, she's comfortable like, with herself. Yeah. yeah. She's comfortable with herself. She's comfortable with the mm-hmm. the dynamic of connecting with people. Right. Because she that's that was how she was introduced was connecting Mm -hmm. people through the Internet. But still, she's got Mm -hmm. this group that she brings together. So this is just this is just yep, this is what you do. You just talk to people. And yeah, of course, we go to the game and it's just no big deal for her, whereas it's a huge deal for him. And I think we do get a little bit of a gender role reversal in that Mm -hmm. that we're used to seeing in fiction the the woman kind of obsessing over, oh, is he going to ask me out? And how's he going to, you know, and it's this long Mm -hmm. drawn out process. And Jenny just doesn't, you know, it just, it doesn't ruffle her. Um, I absolutely love her little yelp when the bell rings, they're walking together (laughs) and the bell rings and she's just, oh, gotta go. Um, And their exchange feels so genuine. Yes. It mm-hmm. feels really the way she talks to him, the way she peeks her head out the door. 
Yeah. She really, Mm -hmm. she's got to go teach this class. Like the bell rang, it's time. But she also wants to continue to talk to him. Yeah. And I mean, for my money, they just make her look so pretty in that scene. She's got her, Mm -hmm. her skirt, that little, you know, sort of flirty skirt with the matching tights and then that Mm -hmm. open knit sage sweater that she just Mm -hmm. she looks great she's a nice match to Giles she looks a little bit more um conservative than she sometimes does Mm -hmm. which looks great with Giles in his head to toe tweed thank you very much it's just but I just I love that scene I love it it's so yeah it's it's so charming it just charms me and then and then his little hop as he turns around yes. to leave, and he's like, "Oh, that went well." And he's oh, got this giant grin on his face. He smiles. Yes, little I smile. Love and he when Giles turns smiles. around. To, I'm yeah. like, "Oh, I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for that that love story so hard in that moment because, damn, they're adorable." I know it's really sweet. I didn't like her at the football game as much. Um, no, because she she dipped into that kind of aggressive antagonistic space you know and I I know she was being fun and flirty but there was just something about the way she does that stuff you know and I don't know if it's the actress or if it's the way it was written but it's just like oh and you're going to mock the national pastime of my you know yeah and just like being a jerk about it and her little her little rap about football being what is it? It's it's like unbridled aggression or something. Right, like that. right. Then, it doesn't but, have the grace of basketball or the poetry of baseball. And I'm like, eh, whatever. Really? Like, you don't care really? about this stuff. You're freaking computer nerd. Like, <laughs> and I mean, yeah. I know that that's like stereotypical and everything. But I'm like, you know, she doesn't strike me as the kind of person who really genuinely cares about sports that much. Yeah. You know, so it was weird to see her kind of make that speech. It felt out of character. Although, you know, we don't know her that well. I mean, she could be a big sports nut. There's nothing to say that that's, you know, mutually exclusive with being a computer person. Right. And there we go. And there we go again with a little bit of a play on gender roles that it's the woman in this relationship that is into sports and into the nuance of sports. She follows more Mm -hmm. than one sport, presumably. Right. So, you know, it's and it feels it feels kind of cheap to me. The the Mm -hmm. oh, we'll just make the woman aggressive and make the man passive and we'll Mm -hmm. establish a cute relationship that way. But for whatever reason, it it works for me. I mm-hmm. like Jenny and Giles, at least at this stage. So sorry, yeah. everybody. <laughs> That's okay. No, I like them too. I mean, I do. And actually, there's a lot of... It's very interesting because as we move forward, Ty King also wrote Passion, as we talked mm-hmm. about at the beginning. And Passion is the episode where Jenny Calendar breaks my heart, you mm-hmm. know? So like, there's there's actually some good Jenny Calendar stuff happening. Yeah. Um, and some great Giles stuff happening. It's so powerful. Um, and I think Ty King actually did a really good job like the the narrative in this episode moves really nicely it escalates nicely I mean I definitely have some questions about some of the presumptions that are in you know in the story mm-hmm. um, but there's really good stuff there's good lines uh, there's good Xander I love this moment where Xander's like talking with Willow and they're walking in and he goes and speaking of love and Willow says we were talking about the reanimation of dead tissue and Xander says do I deconstruct your segues yep and I loved that. I loved that it showed us a a smart Xander because, you know, last week we had, you know, Willow spelling out bitch and he goes, Bicka? 
you know, um, which, which I would have liked better if it was like he knew exactly what he was doing and he was just yeah. playing with it, you know, yeah. but it didn't seem that way. Um, I, I don't like when we play our characters stupid to get the joke. I like when we yeah. play our characters smart to get the joke. And so I really kind of I loved that moment from from Xander. It was really, really fun. Um, and he was he was good. I love when he's talking to to Giles and he goes, "That whole stork thing is a smokescreen." I love <laughs> like, that. That was it's great. Adorable. It's great. This is great, Xander. And this is, I would say, ninety nine percent light Xander, maybe one percent shadow with the uh, with the idea about the heads being attractive. But it's very very cute. You yeah, know? yeah. Xander's so, very yeah. Xander is very cute in this episode, although. He raises a question for me when he talks about um, Jenny being being attractive for someone in Giles's age bracket. Yes, and I could like record scratch right there. I was like, "All right, <laughs> hang on a second, <laughs> hang on a second. So I I gotta go. I'm like I, I'm going to the Google machine because this yeah. is this is ridiculous. So I mean. And this is, this is, I have several patriarchal rants for this episode, but <laughs> this is one of the lesser ones. Yes. So, um, I mean, first of all, the word dalsome is real yucky. Don't yeah. use that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Please don't use that. That sounds just gross. Yes. She's so, reasonably dalsome, especially yeah. for someone in your age bracket. Yeah, I know. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um, but at the time of filming, Anthony mm-hmm. Stewart Head was 43. <laughs> And Romeo Lamore was 27. She was 27? She was 27 when they filmed this. Oh, my God. You know who else was 27? <laughs> Charisma Carpenter. Oh, my God. So Romeo Lamore and Charisma Carpenter they are, the, are the same age. They're the same age. Now, they're the same age. Now, and Xander, Nicholas Brendan, also about 26, 27, about that time. Okay. All right. So, and here's the thing. I mean, there's a there's a long tradition in all of acting of people playing older or younger than they actually Uh are. I acknowledge that that's a thing, but I would just like to point out because this is a, this is a sore spot for me. That Mm -hmm. is not the same age bracket. 43 and 27 is not the same age bracket. And by the half your age plus seven rule about age disparity and sexual relationships, she is 18 months too young for him. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. First of all, I think the character herself is at least mid thirties. Oh yeah. She's 35. Easily. So that's, that's fine. You know, the character is, is what matters. Half your age, half your age plus seven is still bullshit. So we're not, we're not going with that because that's crazy. Minimum. Um, Minimum age. Minimum. Right. Yes. No. The age problem with women and with how women are like, you know, we have women in a lot of circumstances playing, you know, like very young women playing older or, you know, women who are in their mid 20s. Like basically all of the actresses are in their mid 20s. And that's where they work from. You work from 20 to 30 and that's where you get work. So if you're playing somebody who's 45 or you're playing somebody who's 16, they're all the same age, Mm -hmm. you know, especially at this time, because we can only handle women if they are in that 20 to 30 age range you know like culturally it's better now everything's better now back then that was kind of how it was done so the fact that we have two women of the exact same age one playing a 16 year old one playing 35 like that is something that is a hollywood problem you know oh yeah Uh, but if we're talking just within the text right yeah for xander i forgive xander for saying that because he's 16 when you're 16 anybody who's over 19 is old 
You know, anybody who's yes. over 20 is old. Um, and so like your your conception of age, you know, is kind of kind of thrown all over the place. But yeah, it's it's, you know, it's a little bit troublesome. It's like the one percent that's not so great with Xander in this episode. Well, and, you know, and that has much less yeah. to do with Xander and much more to do with me and my sudden curiosity about I look at that all the time because you look at these people like these actresses and no matter what age the character is the actress is always between 20 and 30 yeah you know and that's like it's bad for women in every possible way it's bad for the actresses it's bad for women who watch these actresses and think when they're 16 they're supposed to look 27 and Mm -hmm. when they're 42 they're supposed to look 27 yes like that's not possible you know (laughs) it's an impossible standard and yet that's the standard that we have you know lived with if we haven't been conscious about it we've it's subconscious and not to mention that there's an entire beauty industry that is based on nothing other than you're wrong the way that you are yes that women should not look the way that actual women look yes you know yeah that's a whole other rant that's well, a whole other discussion that but. i mean that is my arg the patriarchy rant or at least it's mm-hmm. part of it um mm-hmm. if we want to skip way ahead to you know, what's your oh, least sure. favorite part of this episode? <laughs> Go for it, babe. Do so, your patriarchy bit. So the patriarchy, I mean, I want to say it's the entire fucking episode and, you know, fight me on that. Right, right. You know, yeah. It's just one lousy girl. Eric's pornography collection so prodigious that it scared Xander, which, yeah, hello, that's <laughs> a whole Anyway, yeah, the, you um, can unpack that all thing, that whole thing. Yeah, for a while. that's yeah. that we could unpack that forever. But, you know, we're not going to do that. But mm-hmm. Daryl looking at the the reconstructed girl, she's headless, by the way, says yes. she's mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. We've got a stitched together, three sk- stitched together corpses on this table with no head. Yeah. And she's beautiful. And I just she is uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm, nope. Um yep. But the thing that I really want to talk about with this reanimation fantasy is the choice to use parts from multiple bodies. Now, you've suggested that maybe this is because in the car accidents, they were mangled somehow beyond, you know, repair. But of course, Daryl is obviously mangled and they have managed to reassemble him. So I don't know. I don't buy it. Um, But the conversation around bodies and women's bodies in particular mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. inevitably veers into talking about flaws or trouble right. areas mm-hmm. or you know whatever individual parts we're going to zoom in on and it's bullshit i mean human beings mm-hmm. are whole beings not a collection of parts to be broken down and further mm-hmm. broken down um but that's not the this idea that your body is a collection of parts is not biology it's not a reflection of our bodies it's a reflection of capitalism yes Um, Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna about to make a pop cultural reference that's gonna show my age and i don't care (laughs) that's okay i don't care um there's an episode well i mean i grew up i grew up watching all of those sitcoms and there's this episode of frasier where frasier and niles visit a spa Mm -hmm. and as they're leaving they're handed bags of products that are tailored to their individual needs Mm -hmm. um quote unquote and Niles looks into his bag and says, I've never even heard of eyelash conditioner. <laughs> and Frazier says, ah, hence the brittle lashes. 
And that's funny. You know, that's stuck Uh with me. That's funny because, you know, they're men and it's the 90s and it seems patently ridiculous. But also, I ended up down an internet rabbit hole when I was looking up how old all of the actors in Buffy the Vampire Slayer were at the time of filming. And I discovered that you can absolutely buy eyelash specific conditioners. But of course, Mm -hmm. they're marketed almost exclusively to women. Well, and, of course. You know, and hey, like deep condition your eyelashes all you want. If that is what makes you happy, it makes you feel fabulous, go for it. Do it. Right. Mm-hmm. But you're not less than if you don't. You're not. Right. If your lashes are less than perfect, if, you know, because it seems like. For most women, this has been my experience, like knowing my friends, talking to women, spent most of my life talking to women, um, is that if you fix one thing, there's always something else that's not good enough. And that is absolutely a result of capitalism and the beauty industry, which is made to, you know, to feed you the poison and then sell you the cure, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's not to say that I think there's anything wrong with makeup or with doing your hair. Like I do my hair and my makeup every day, whether I'm leaving the house or not. Like it's fun. I like it. It makes me feel good. And it makes me feel like it's a self care thing, you know, for me to a certain degree is that, you know, and, and also like, I hate to say it. It's really true. If you leave the house as a woman and you have makeup on, people treat you better. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely true. People are nicer to you. People are more friendly. They smile at you more. It makes you feel better throughout the day. Um, But also there's the decorative part of it too. I like the reason why you get tattoos, right? You Mm -hmm. decorate your body. You Mm -hmm. wear the clothes that you want to wear because they're decorative, you know? It's fun. It's fun to decorate. Humans do that. They decorate their environment all the time. Why shouldn't they decorate their bodies? It's just that a lot of times it's not enough to decorate your body. It's that you have to fix all of the things that are wrong with your body and then somehow that will make you acceptable that you're not acceptable as you are until you fixed all of your problems and that makes billions and billions of dollars for people predominantly men um you know, every year. And that's something that does need some serious looking at. I mean, Brene Brown always says, you know, when there's something that doesn't sit right with you, think about who benefits from that Mm -hmm. idea, you know, and especially who makes money off of that idea. Absolutely. And if somebody makes money off of that idea, then you need to seriously question that idea. So, um, so I don't think it's bad at all to wear makeup or to condition your eyelashes, get all the tattoos, wear what you want, decorate yourself. You know, um, I think the problem comes in when you feel like if you don't decorate yourself, that you are, you, your value is decreased. And especially as a woman, like in this, the message is women have less value than men. Mm -hmm. That's the implicit message. We are looking directly at misogyny and saying, hey, that's gross, but we're not doing enough. Right. You and, know, and this premise, this premise mm-hmm. that high school boys would cut yeah. three whole bodies up and choose the best parts yeah. is absolutely horrifying. And mm-hmm. it's also an extension of that idea that capitalist patriarchy perpetuate you know that that yeah that notion that women are not whole autonomous human beings but a collection of parts to be used and objectified oh and commodified well certainly you know and used by men for the benefit of men um yeah 
I mean, that is the underlying driving notion of this whole narrative, is it not? The commodification of the female body. Mm -hmm. And that is... Yeah, I mean, it's literal objectification. Mm -hmm. Women are a collection of parts and they are objects. Yes. They are a leg. They are breasts. They are, you know, a vagina. They are something to, you know, to use and discard. And to control. And it's harmful. And to control. Absolutely. Because that's the end goal is to have someone who will stay with Daryl. Right. That's just... He won't accept. Cordelia says, I'll go out with you. Mm-hmm. Don't kill me. Mm-hmm. And I'll go out with you, which, by the way, is a terrible thing for a terrible bargain for any woman to ever have to like make. No, you know? sh- yeah. But he doesn't want her unless she has no other options. Which is so weird because he comes at her with that rap about I didn't realize how much it meant that you wanted to be with me. Right. You know, and now I have a second chance. So he he wants to take away her choice. Yes, absolutely. When she wanted to be with him, he didn't want her. But now that she's strapped to the table about to, you know, lose her life. Mm-hmm. Now it's okay for him. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Just... Yeah. It's pretty, pretty freaking awful. It's real bad. So it's yeah, real and that bad. is, and that is the the patriarchy in a nutshell. And I mean, the thing is that the patriarchy is also really damaging to men because men who treat other human beings, women, as objects, as pieces, as parts, are dehumanized as well. You lose your humanity when you treat other people that way. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it's bad all around. You know, it's just it's, it's a just, bad thing, and it has good. to be called out. It's yeah. not good. No, it's not good at all. I feel like we need to lighten it up just a little bit after that <laughs> conversation of cutting <laughs> women up into parts. Yes, I mean, it's just I wanted to. I want to talk about wardrobe just a little bit, which brings us sure. Brings Let's go to wardrobe into, um, or connects us a little bit to the the cutting up of bodies but we've got this sure. lovely patchwork theme uh-huh. that right. go, that that uh gets carried through several of the wardrobe choices uh including mm-hmm. chris's shirt when we first see him is is a collection yep. of squares and then willow also has squares on her on her shirt as wow. they're talking at the beginning and i just I, I mean, we didn't talk about Willow and Chris, but I like mm-hmm. their interaction at the beginning where she clearly yeah. has this kind of it's it's just a little bit of a crush with some professional envy. It's very, right. very subtle and very cute. But Willow wears this great patchwork top later in the mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. And I just love I love the choice to choose something stitched together. In that way for the That's story so about interesting. stitching together. I did not pick up on that at all, but you're absolutely right. And then there's plaid everywhere. I mean, Giles wears mm-hmm. a plaid scarf, which is something he absolutely mm-hmm. would wear. Uh, Chris's mm-hmm. mother wears a plaid housecoat and the curtains behind her are plaid. And there's this, this is not wardrobe, but the the um, set department found this mm-hmm. door for Chris's yes, house, it's got. This, I noticed that. Yeah, this like wonderful triangular stained glass sort of a mm-hmm. 
quilts. All put together in pieces, right? The pieces make the whole. Mm -hmm. So we have all of this stuff that's all of these component parts that are stitched together Mm -hmm. in the visuals. That's so great. Yeah, I I also want to say Buffy wears plaid pants. I think in that last scene where that that, uh, fight scene with Chris at the end, or not Chris, uh, Daryl. Mm-hmm. Daryl, when she fights Daryl, and that that fight choreography is fantastic. There is yeah. some great, great martial arts choreography going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Although <laughs> I do think it's funny that culturally we have this idea that if you are a reanimated monster of sorts, you're mm-hmm. suddenly super strong. No, I was wondering about that because I was like, if anything, it would seem to me here's a guy who died, was brought back and can't heal. Right. So he would be less unless they did something to him that made him super strong. But there wasn't a supernatural element. This was a science project. This is something mm-hmm. that was done with science, not with magic. Right. So um, so how is he able to hold his own against Buffy? How is how does that work? I mean, I don't know. The only explanation is that it's kind of a thing in fiction because Dr. Frankenstein's creature was strong, but it was also huge. Yes. It was enormous. But he specifically made Frankenstein to be that way. Like there was a scientific reason why he was larger than life. He was bigger. He was stronger, you know, because of what Frankenstein had deliberately done. Mm-hmm. And here we just all they did was they brought him back and they stitched him up. Yeah. You know, but like he's he was broken enough to die. He was injured. It appears he does not heal because his skin is not healing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's still literally stitched together. So like that he would seem even weaker than your average human. Yeah. I wonder if it's related to the idea of zombies not caring about their own bodies, that there's Mm -hmm. a strength in a a strength that is sometimes literalized in not caring about what happens mm-hmm. to your physical body because it's already been injured right. to the point mm-hmm. of of death. I'm I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, but one thing that I do want to talk about so we can end on a really light and fun note is yes. Cordelia and Xander. Oh my god. <laughs> I love Cordelia and Xander. I think they're so sweet. They're starting to snark at each other, which is very fun and, you know, and I like the two of them together. Yeah. Yeah, they're they are so funny with their back mm-hmm. and forth in the library. And then I know. <laughs> And then at the end, when uh, Cordelia comes up to Xander. Right. (laughs) He's complaining about how they never get dates and they don't ever talk to anybody. And then she's like, I just wanted to thank you for saving my life. What you did there was so heroic. And I want to know if there's ever anything that I can do for you. And he's like, "Uh, whatever, I'm talking. Yeah. (laughs) And he just completely blows her off. It is very cute. It's a little ironic because then he turns to Will and says, I don't understand. Why don't we get dates? Exactly. Um, So it was kind of sweet. But I mean, I love like everything. You know, there's a moment where she's like, why are these terrible things always happening to me? And Xander goes, karma. Yeah. (laughs) And it's really, they're just 
so cute and I really love it. Although there's this one thing that um, after they come in, they find Angel and Cordelia and Angel says, Cordelia told me the truth. And Xander says, well, that's got to be a first. And I'm like, no, Xander, you don't get to make that joke. Yeah. Because Cordelia is the one who always tells the truth. Yeah. So she's our truth teller. You can't make that joke at her expense. But it was it was really pretty cute. And, you know, knowing that, of course, we're going to be seeing a Cordelia and Xander romance blooming, you know, over the next, uh, I think it's in the middle of this season that that starts. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to be a lot of fun. And it's kind of fun to see that sort of building up, you know, at this point. Yeah. So it's very, very cute. All right. So, Noelle, do we have a girl power moment of the week? Uh, I think we do. I love okay. what is it? I love Buffy saying, I think anyone who cuts dead girls into little pieces does not get the benefit of any doubt. I like that. And I yeah. may have cheered and pumped my fist a little bit. And she said that <laughs> like that is a line you do not cross. Yeah, absolutely. And let's call it out that this is not okay. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, we have to call it out that this is not okay, because presumptions in our society kind of say, eh, maybe not so bad, right? Yep. Yeah. So I think that's pretty good. All right. So what's your favorite part? My favorite part is Jenny and Giles. I love them so much. I love them so, so much. And I love... I. It's it feels a little bit weird if I scratch it too hard, but but Buffy coaching Giles on yes. you know the nuances of dating. Um, you know yeah. she's a techno pagan. Ask her to bless your laptop. I just, right. Oh, and of course that has you know double entendre. That's sure, kind of adorable. Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ask her to bless your laptop. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. but they're just they're delightful, and mm-hmm. and I really. I really want better for Giles, you guys. <laughs> I do too. I know, um, but but Jenny Jenny has her moments. Yeah, she she gets better as we go. So I mean, I I am enjoying her more than I did in season one, and that's granted a low bar. Right. But still, she gets better yeah. until she gets worse. But we'll talk yeah. about that. We'll talk about that when we talk about that. We'll get there. We'll get. Oh there. yeah. What's your favorite right. part, Lonnie? Oh God, you know Buffy and Angel. I love them. I like them together. I like the open and closed bookend scenes in the graveyard. Um, you know, in the open, they're in the graveyard. They're together, but they're apart. And in the closed, they're in the graveyard. They're completely together because they're being honest with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's just really, and it's so sweet the way he just holds out his hand, to take her hand. She's like, I could walk you I home. could walk you, you home. You know, and then, of course, we yeah. swap those gender roles again because she's walking him home, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's incredibly sweet. So I really enjoy it all right that's it for today to join in the discussion on twitter follow lonnie at lonnie diane rich and me at noella loud and use the hashtag still pretty you can also visit the chipperish forums go to chipperish.com click on forum and join in the fun there or you can keep chipperish media going to the tune of one dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat in discord where you can hang out with me and noelle and all the chipperish patrons who wish people wouldn't leave open graves lying around like this visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more you can also show your support for still pretty by going to apple podcasts and giving us a review that's one of the most effective ways to show support for your favorite podcasts Or you can use your social media platform of choice to tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. 
Yes, we will be back next time with School Heart. School Heart, which is where Spike shows up, and I'm so excited. It's the third episode of season two. Until then, you don't just sneak up on people in a graveyard. You make noise when you walk. You stomp or yodel. <laughs> <laughs>